Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for this latest episode of the INC Preview Show. And a very Merry Christmas as well. This is the closest thing I have to a Christmas jumper. My name's Carl Bimage, and at the bottom of your screen there, you'll see that I'm joined by a special guest. Normally, I present the show with John Marsh in MMA. Unfortunately, John is a little bit busy with some uh, work commitments right now. Doesn't have the time to do the preview show. But I did ask him, and I said, John, can you tell me who is the best guy to go to outside of yourself when it comes to MMA predictions, writing articles, basically digesting and dissecting every single fight that we're going to be having on this card. And he pointed me to the man there. Uh, Saram, thank you very much for joining us on very short notice. That's a lot of pressure, but uh, thank you for having me. So for anybody who might not be familiar with your work, just tell people a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm from the Fight Site, uh, which is a website that you should check out because for as much as John seems to have gassed me up, uh, the people there are pretty much uniformly better than I am. But um, yeah, check us out. I've written a couple articles in the last couple months. So I have a podcast of my own that uh, I'd recommend you check out as well because I'm very biased in that regard. But uh, yeah, I've uh, been following the sport since like 2013, and um, that's pretty much all I have to say. I'm not a very interesting person. Well, hopefully, well, you can't really say that. People will be turning off now. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fantastic. And I also recommend that anybody check out John's uh, podcast. He's still continuing to uh, pump out content. He'll be doing his own preview for UFC 256. So I do recommend anybody check out John Marsh and MMA on YouTube and give that one a few extra bumps up. He needs the subscribers. And we'd like to give him all the help that we can because we're one big happy family here in the MMA YouTube community. So, first thing that we need to start with is we need to be talking about some of the things that have been happening in the world of mixed martial arts because we like to sort of paint, paint the setting as it were before we get into UFC 256. And one big story which I want to focus on in particular, it's going to be our first discussion topic, is something that Dana White said uh, on Saturday. Obviously we had the event between Jack Hermanson and Marvin Vittori and then during the press conference Dana responded to the comments about Yuval Romero getting released. And he said that obviously the UFC has taken on a lot of extra people this year. Which means that he's going to be cutting at least 60 members of its roster. And there's going to be some very big names in there. So this is our first discussion topic, Saram. Um, where do you stand on this? Is there anybody in particular who you think could be in danger? Are the UFC playing quite a dangerous game by getting rid of these big established names with the likelihood the guys from the Contender Series going to be taking their place? Well, I don't think they're looking for good fighters with the Contender Series, just because that's not how the selection process works. Because if Dana White were an actual talent scout, he wouldn't be picking fights based on, like, oh, he got this flying knee finish. Um, so that's not really what the Contender Series is. What I do think is happening is that the UFC is moving towards kind of a Bellator model, where a lot of very bad fighters on a roster, they're going to be having even fights, Sometimes, and sometimes, more often, good fighters dominate other good fighters. Bad fighters are going to dominate other bad fighters, which is why you see, like, you know, minus 700 favorites in Bellator looking like minus 1,000s, and why you see a lot of meme finishes and, like, you know, really dominant performances that people confuse for good cards. And that's also what happens when people say, oh, this card is bad, has no names. It's good anyway because, you know, they look like they're going to disappoint, but those are always the ones that are the best. They're the best because the bad fighters they're not going to have thoughtful, slow fights. They're going to have very dumb, fast fights on average. So 
what the UFC is doing is they're moving towards a model where it's not really about good fighters. It's about exciting fights and exciting fights at any cost possible. And I think that's going to work, quite frankly, because I don't think people really have the discerning ability between good fighters and fighters that draw their interest. So, for example, I think Rafael Sonsao is pretty much as good as cut. And that's pretty sad to me because Rafael Sonsao has been one of my favorite fighters for a couple of years now. He's very, very good. But no one's going to miss him. And just like no one's going to miss Juicy Formiga, who was also one of my favorite fighters for a couple years now. So it's a pretty sad state of affairs. And I don't think the UFC is expecting the contender series to take their place as thoughtful, uh, skilled fighters. I think they're just trying to cut out the tier of, oh, this fighter's really good, but you don't want to see him. They want the exciting contenders or they want the exciting journeymen and nothing in between. Do you think that the current climate in mixed martial arts is a factor in why the UFC are going down this model? Because you could argue that if there was a strong number two promotion, they'd be more willing to hold on to those sort of middle ground names. But Bellator's ratings aren't as great as what they maybe can be. One, there's a lot of question marks surrounding their finances. So really, the UFC are the only A-tier show. If there was something like a strike force or a pride around, I don't think the UFC would be taking this approach. Yeah, I think you could explain a lot of UFC conduct by the fact that they're pretty much a monopoly in the U.S. Because if you look at Bellator, they're, I wouldn't consider them a C-grade promotion. I don't think they're very – they have some good fighters. Uh, check out Joey Davis because my boy Ed Gallo wrote a book on him, and he's very good. But uh, past like a little bit of uh, good talent that they get, they're not good promoters. And if you look at the, the promotions that I would consider good outside of the UFC, number one is ACA, and they're in Russia, which isn't really competition. Uh, you've got promotions like Ryzen and One, which aren't really that amazing, but uh, they have at least they have more talent than Bellator, but they're not competing with the UFC per se. So, yeah, a lot of what the UFC is doing from, like, paying their fighters peanuts to uh, manipulating the rankings the way they do with Leon Edwards to what they're doing now, just releasing fighters who are old with um, – not even old, just releasing fighters who they don't think are particularly interesting with no real regard for getting that talent to another promotion who can actually handle it. It's pretty clear. Like, there's really no way that the UFC would be operating the way that they are without having the biggest margin – in terms of error that any company has in the U.S. right now. Are there any sort of high-profile names that you think are going to be in danger? Obviously, you mentioned the stunts out. Is there anybody else who you a little concerned about? Uh, I mean, I'll say I'm glad RDA won his last fight. Um, that probably saved him. Although, I mean, a lot of the guys that I think are going to be in danger I don't think should be fighting anymore to start with. Uh, for example, I think Rafael Asuncao should have retired before the Garbrandt fight because losing to Garbrandt is kind of a sign that he's been uh, shot for a while, like irreparably shot. So there's that. But I think uh, Jose Aldo might be a surprising one if he loses to Cheeto Vera. Um, I don't, I don't think they'll cut guys like Cowboy just because Cowboy's like you know Cowboy. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I can't think of a ton. Rafael Asuncao is the obvious one just because they've hated him throughout his career. And they also cut the guy at Flyweight, who's pretty much Flyweight, Rafael Asuncao, and Formica. Um, I kind of hope they just pull a fast one and cut every heavyweight and light heavyweight, because that would actually be a good outcome from all those. But um, it's probably going to be a bunch of fun uh, featherweights, bantamweights, flyweights. Uh, if they cut Demiris Magulov, I'm going to be very mad. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I'm really worried for Tyron Woodley. Oh, I wish they cut Tyron Woodley. Yeah, I think Woodley's going to be one of the, the high-profile names. I Dare I say, possibly Bobby Lawler as well, because the Neil Magny performance, just it felt like Lawler a shot fighter. But we've, we're here to try and accentuate the positives. We need to be trying to make things... It's sort of 
It's a shame that the news about this has come out because it's really overshadowed USC 256, which, yeah, there were some question marks about this show going into it, but I actually think that the UFC have put together, bearing in mind what's happening with COVID, bearing in mind how bad the card looked a couple of weeks out, I think they've got a, a fairly decent card. Not worthy of being sort of like end of the year, the big blockbuster that the December show normally is, but it's a solid enough card. Yeah, it's quite decent. I mean, I think this, the way that the UFC builds cards these days is like one good fight and several not-so-good fights. And right now we've got at least three good fights on this card, which is pretty much my standard for is this card one that they're trying to make very big. So, yeah, I mean, the prelims are prelims. They're not awful prelims, but they're not like, you know, UFC 217-tier prelims, but like what is? So uh, 217 is one of my all-time favorite shows. Yeah, 217 was crazy. But um, the main card looks pretty good. At least has some names. And the top three are all fights that I'm reasonably interested in. So I uh, can't really ask for more than that from the UFC. And honestly, this is probably a show that we should relish because fighters like Junior Dos Santos and Ronaldo Souza do not exist in the future vision of the UFC. So, um, I mean, I don't really enjoy watching them anymore. As I said, the fighters that they're cutting are the ones that I don't think should be currently active. They should have retired on their own uh, on their own just on their own, I guess. Uh, but, um, you know, if the UFC is going to start cutting all these cool Brazilian fighters, then that's going to be gone. So, uh, hope that goes well. It's a good thing you did mention the prelims. We've got them on the screen now. Now, these are up to date at the time that we record this on the Sunday. Um, but it is subject to change. Obviously, we've got COVID and there has been a lot of COVID cancellations at the Apex over the past couple of days. Um, is there any names really that stick out for you? when it comes to these prelims. The the headline act, the guy who's headlining the prelims, is the return of Cub Swanson. Uh, Cub, obviously one of the most exciting fighters on the roster, um, always been a perennial contender in the featherweight division. Everybody remembers the fight with uh, Doohoo Choi, UFC 206. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of Cub we get. Long layoff with injury, arguably was on the decline even before then. He's taken on Daniel Pineda, what can we expect from Cub, do you think? Uh, I mean, I wasn't really expecting much from Cub. I picked Cub over Crone Gracie because I figured Crone Gracie was just not a striker whatsoever. Uh, so that went decently, I guess. But Cub, uh, that was an ugly fight. I think uh, Cub's defense has never been particularly good, but uh, he's still hitting the body a lot, which is cool. Uh, I don't remember a ton about that fight other than it just being a big sloppy mess. But on the other hand, Crone Gracie looked like one of the most uh, destructively single-minded fighters I've ever seen in the sport. So uh, I don't think Daniel Pineda's that. Pineda's getting some credit for beating Herbert Burns, which is fine. But um, I don't. I, I never really rated Burns. I think he'd uh, he'd beaten guys like Eb and Dunham and uh, Nate Landwehr, but neither of those guys are particularly good at this stage in their career. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't really have, like, a read on this. I think Cub Swanson's been weirdly inconsistent in terms of his chin uh, later in his career, he had that really good fight against uh, Shane Burgos right after getting nuked by a Moicano jab. So uh, there are some questions here. I don't know if the layoff's going to do anything, but at this stage in his career, like in general, it's more and more likely that it's going to show up looking bad. Out of any of the fights that sort of take your interest outside of Swanson and Pineda, um, I know that obviously the Gillian Robertson fight has been moved to the 719th card, but at one point the ESPN prelims had three women's fights. And you go on Twitter, you, you got a little bit of sexism for that, but I think those women's fights, and especially Mackenzie Dern and Verna Jandirova, 
could really surprise a lot of people because we all know that Dern is a beast on the ground. Werner is incredibly underrated as well. So I'm excited for that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really make a habit of uh, getting of looking forward to women's MMA fights because, uh, I mean, I don't, there are some that are very good, but mostly just at like a really high level because um, women's MMA at this point is not really anything having to do with women. It's just existed for such a short period of time that it's not really as deep as the good divisions. It's kind of like a heavyweight analog where you've got some good guys like um, like Joanna and Whaley, for instance, and Valentina Shevchenko. But past that, it's not really uh, particularly impressive. If there's a fight on here that really interests me, it's probably Gavin Tucker versus Billy Quarantillo. Um that looks like a fun action fight at the very least, although this isn't the kind of fight that I'd book if I were the UFC, just because it's two like, genuinely solid prospects. But Tucker looked very good in his last fight against Justin James. And uh, Quarantillo, he beat the, the the ginger guy. What's his name? Spike Carlisle. But, um, yeah, that guy. I, I just remember him as the, the ginger with some qualities that I don't really want to uh, want him to have. And no cardio but, uh, whatsoever. Um, well, yeah, and anti-Semitism, but uh, yeah. Quarantillo, and, and he beat that Kyle Nelson dude, which is actually a pretty impressive win because he, uh, you know, Nelson's at least a pretty decent power puncher. So, yeah, that's the fight I'm looking forward to. I think it's going to be fun at the very least. I don't really have any opinions on guys uh, this, you know, low on, like guys that are beating this tier of competition. It's hard to tell what they're really good at because they haven't really been tested, but both guys look pretty competent at what they're doing. And uh, that's pretty much the only fight I see here that's going to reliably be fun and not depressing like Swanson could be. And on that cheery note, we'll get on to the first fight of the main card. We're going up to the heavyweight division, and we're going to be kicking off with a real veteran versus prospect matchup. A lot of people have been very excited about this guy for a long, long time. I include myself in that. Finally, this is hopefully going to be Cyril Garns coming of age, and he's got a big, big ask. He's taking on the former heavyweight champion, Junior Dos Santos. Uh, a lot of people are backing Steve Elgar for this one. If you look at the bookmaker's odds, minus 400 favorite. You can get JDS at plus 300. And the big question for a lot of people going into this is, is Junior Dos Santos still that same fighter? Can he still be a challenger, or is he just being fed to an up-and-comer in Garn? I mean, it's heavyweight. I can't really say anyone's like completely done in terms of just like getting wins at a top 15 level just because it's heavyweight. But I do think Junior Dos Santos has looked pretty dreadful lately. Um, I mean, the Ngannou fight, that was like the worst punch I've ever seen a high-level fighter throw. Uh, the rainbow overhand, as my friend Danny put it, which was uh, he pretty much just threw himself completely out of stance and turned his back on a guy who can pretty much only counter you if you throw yourself wildly out of position. So there's that. And I think the interesting part about the Rosenstreich fight, other than just Junior Dos Santos winning very slowly at distance and looking completely decayed, is that it kind of just, it was 15 seconds between Jarzinho Rosenstreich figuring out, I'm fighting Junior Dos Santos, I should pressure, and the fight ending knockdown. Like, I think Rosenstreich would have put him out in 15 seconds if he was the kind to, like, think before a fight and not in the middle of a fight, because it was literally 15 seconds. So, I don't, Cyril Ghan isn't a pressure fighter from what I've seen. Uh, I kind of think Shamil Abdurahimov would have beaten Cyril Gan just because Gan's pretty reliant on his kicking game, and Abdurahimov is like the only heavyweight who's capable of dealing with kicks in any kind of consistent way. But uh, Junior Dos Santos, just as a general uh, read, he's too far gone, and I don't, don't think he's the kind to um, take away Gan's like you know very movie style. He's not really a counterpuncher, so I don't think Gan's going to uh, be punished for like his weird rear hand form. 
comes down points is losing durability by the day, I think. So um, it's probably going to be pretty ugly for him. I think the Royce and Strike fight really summed up JDS, like the sort of late career JDS to a T. Because if you remember that first round, he does very well. He, I think, in my opinion, he won the first round against Royce and Strike. But as you mentioned before, once Royce and Strike realised, hey, I know how to get him back up against the feds. We saw that same issue that we've had from JDS countless times before. We saw it with Cain Velasquez. We saw it against Stipe. Once he gets backed up against the fence, he panics. His defense goes to pieces. And that's how Royce and Strike finished him off. Um, that being said, it is heavyweight. You can never write off anybody too quickly. I mean, we were writing off Andrei Olovsky back in, what, 2008? And he ended up becoming the number one contender in the heavyweight division again. Um, one of the things I do like about JDS, though, he still has fantastic boxing pedigree. And if you look at Cyril Garn's opponents, you look at people like Dontel Mays, Tanner Bowser, etc. There's nobody out there who Garn has faced who has the boxing credentials as what JDS does. Uh, I mean, I suppose, but I also think that that's kind of going away. Because the thing about Jorginho Rosenstroik is that I don't hate him for a heavyweight. But for the first round of that fight, he was pretty much a blank slate. He wasn't doing much of the things that um, that would trouble JDS classically. He was counter-kicking a lot, but that wasn't like something that... Uh, I mean, that isn't something that heavyweights do, which which was pretty cool. But JDS also kind of seemed to lose most of the kind of offense building that made him pretty good. Uh, for instance, he just he body jab a lot. He didn't really build off it particularly well. Uh, in his prime, he had you know the head jab, the body jab, the left hook up top. He had a, a change up off his lead hand that was pretty much gone against Rosenstroik. Uh, I think he's just I think he's just done. I don't have much of a reason to think JDS is going to be uh, looking good anytime soon. The question is whether it takes looking good against Cyril Gan, and we have seen JDS have like a top game before against like Taito Ivasa, so that's something to watch out for. But in general, I think Gon just youths um, him. That, that's the best way I can put it. There's a lot of people who might not know who Cyril Gan is. A lot of the hardcore fans really excited about him. For anybody who might be one of those sort of casuals who are wondering who the hell this French guy is, why are people so high on Cyril Gan? Uh, right. So Cyril Gan is, um, I think when you look at a heavyweight, it's there's a lot of guys who are like plotting and slow. And just as an optics thing, Cyril uh, looks very different uh, because, you know, he's able to move pretty quickly. He's laterally fairly active. He's very kicky, which is something that heavyweights just aren't very good at dealing with, as I mentioned before. Uh, he has, uh, he thinks about what he's doing, which is pretty rare for a heavyweight. Uh, he can, you know, faint his way into uh, different attacks. He's, there are like, there are a lot of things that Cyril does that I think you'd consider a baseline skill set for a lighter fighter. But you see it at heavyweight, and it's just something completely different because there's just no one who's capable of dealing with it. And I think another part is that people have started really high on Tanner Bozer before the Arlovsky fight, and Gon kind of shut him out. So that's another thing. Um, I don't really have as high an opinion on him just because I'm very wary of being hyped on heavyweights, as Tanner yes. Bozer showed. But, um, yeah, I think there's reason to be excited about Cyril Gon as a heavyweight in terms of he's probably a lock for top five uh, just in terms of being competent at several things. But I don't think he's um, I don't think he's some kind of transcendental talent even if he's a potential champion. I mean that's a good way to look at it. The big thing that stands out for me, his footwork, his movement for a man of his size. Because I think Garn I'm tempted to say Garn weighs in around sort of like two fifty five. So for a man of his size, his footwork and his movement it's light years 
above those sort of unmanked heavyweights, people like the like the Jay Colliers of the world, etc. So I I do I do like that from Civil Garn. I also like his submission game. A lot of people look at his background. He was a Muay Thai champion in France and just think he can only strike. But he's got three submissions on his record. And he submitted, uh, I think it was Dontel Mays with a leg lock, which you seldom see in the heavyweight division. So he's starting to build that all-round game. Yeah, and he also tapped out that uh, that guy, that Brazilian dude, who uh, had his ass out for the entire fight, <laughs> which is all I remember about that fight. But... Um, yeah, I mean, Gon is showing inklings of a ground game against people who can't grapple at all, which is more than um, we expected from a Muay Thai guy, a Muay Thai guy, uh, more of a kickboxer. I don't think I've seen much of Muay Thai from him in terms of, like, actual, but uh, more of a kickboxer. But he's a pretty solid one for a heavyweight, and I think he's worth getting excited about in the context of, um, of heavyweight prospects. So, time for you to uh, put your money where your mouth is. Uh, most people are backing Gone to win this one. Do you follow them? Yeah, I mean, for the last couple of fights of JDS, I've just said he's too far gone to really do anything. Um, even with the Lewis fight, the Lewis fight was pretty concerning to me because uh, he got hurt by Lewis just walking in. And uh, did he get hurt? He got yeah. Kind of like I, a think, punch. I think I think uh, Derek Lewis like dropped that. him because he hurt he hurt yeah. he hurt Derek to the uh, body, and then Lewis threw that big overhand, and I think he dropped him. Yeah, no, I think he was, like, he was throwing a kick at the same time, so then he got, like, kind of swept off his feet. But uh, either way, that was not a good showing from JDS. He got hit a weird number of times. He wasn't really doing the offense building that I mentioned earlier. Uh, he just kind of got away with Lewis being Lewis. And after that, every single showing after that has just been completely dreadful. Uh, in Ghana, as I mentioned, Blades. Blades is looking like a – he's an improving striker, but I don't think getting outstruck by Blades is the thing that a, um, a champion boxer should be doing. So, uh, yeah, it's just – Pick against JDS on presumption. The longer that his career goes, the more confident you can be that JDS is not going to win a hard matchup anymore. I'm going to pick Civil Gan to win this one. I don't think Gan has the one-shot power to knock out JDS. So I'm going to say Gan by decision. My one sort of asterisk next to that, though, is, again, Gan hasn't faced a strike at the level of JDS. And we've seen plenty of times before, especially this year, of these highly rated prospects who trip themselves up once they face that jumping quality. So that's just so I sort of cause for concern, but I am going with Garn on this one. Okay, fight number two. And for this one, we are going up to, for down, I should say, to the middleweight division. Now, this is a fight which is chopped and changed so many times. Uh, originally, Jacob Ray Souza was supposed to be making his return to action up against Marvin Vittori. But of course, uh, Darren Till pulled out of the fight with Jack <coughs> Hermanson. Originally, it was going to be Kevin Holland. Holland then tested positive for COVID, so they switched Holland and Marvin Vittori around. So that means that Kevin Holland is going to be taking on Jaco Souza on the main card of UFC 256. I hope people are following this. I'm getting really confused in my own head. Um, where do you stand on this? What, what would you say is the better fight if you were Kevin Holland? Would you have rather taken that main event against Hermanson or taken on the higher profile opponent on the bigger showcase of a pay-per-view? Well, first of all, the way that they switched this fight doesn't actually make sense to me because it's only a week apart, but apparently they did it because Holland tested positive for coronavirus, which is kind of a weird gamble to make when I, like, I think you should have just pulled Holland and yes. made the Vittori Hermanson fight and given Jack Ray's paycheck, because right now I don't really know if Holland's going to make it to the fight, but 
with regard to like which fight he should take. I mean, I guess Hermanson's the better opponent, but also like Jacare is very old and he still has a name and he could like just get killed at any time. So and I yeah, did, I, mean, I, I think it's a wash. And I didn't fancy Holland against Hermanson. I don't think that would have ended well for him. I think Vittori had the better skill set to eventually get that win over Hermanson. So I think I think Jacare, bearing in mind his age, bearing in mind his fighting style, plays a lot better into Holland's um, skill set. Yeah, I mean, I don't really rate Vittori particularly highly either. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think Holland would have just gotten wrestled. He got taken down and mounted by, like, Gerald Mearshart um, and Darren Stewart. Darren Stewart kind of 10-6'd him in round three. So Hermanson probably would have just uh, pounded him out. But, I mean, on the other hand, I'm not really sure how valuable a Jacare win is anymore. Like, I think there's a chance that Jacare could win this fight. I think we'll get into that later. But in terms of how Jacare has looked, he's looked pretty dreadful. Like, they're... The fact that Jan Blachowicz won the uh, won the belt, it doesn't really retcon the fact that Jacare didn't have much effective offense against him whatsoever. He just kind of like held him against the fence for a lot of rounds, trying to win the fight that way. And uh, the Hermanson fight, he didn't look very good either. He rallied to win rounds three and five, I believe. But uh, most of the stuff that he did in the Weidman fight, the kind of body head change up, was only there in those rounds. And you could see a lot of heart in him there, but it still wasn't a performance where you could say Jacare looks good. Uh, Hermanson kind of befuddled him uh, from on top somehow. And, uh, you know, just in terms of volume, I think Jacare is just not going to look good at any point moving forward. It's a theme in the lower part of this card, which is that it's a prospect against a Brazilian who really shouldn't be fighting. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess this made sense from a name value perspective in terms of what Holland should take. But also, I'm not sure if this makes Holland the kind of... Uh, I'm not sure this gives Holland the credit that even a competitive fight against Hermanson would have. Well, I think Jacare still carries a lot of name value. So I think that's a big factor. So I think if he was to win this fight, that's going to look good on his resume, regardless of whether Jacare maybe is shot like a lot of people believe he is. And I think it's a good reward for Kevin Holland as well, because if you look at this sort of COVID era in the UFC, Kevin Holland's got four wins in a row, a lot of them by stoppage, beat Joaquin Buckley, who's like really high with the company right now. So he's really capitalizing on this sort of new world, as it were. And I think he's looking a lot better. I mean, I saw this reckless wild guy who was on the Contender series, and he took that short notice fight against Santos, and we were all amused by all the spectacular wild stuff he was doing. He's starting to mature, he's starting to get a bit more composed, and he's grinding out these wins. Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, what surprises me about this is that um, if you look back on that fight he had with that Italian dude, Alessio uh, or something, um, he broke his shoulder in that fight, and then he looked like kind of the fighter he is right now, where he was just fighting behind a counter. So I think breaking something made him better, and he's figured <laughs> that out. But, um, yeah, I mean, Holland, I don't think Holland is like a smart fighter right now. I think he's still prone to do very, very dumb things, and they even get dominated in certain phases. But... Yeah, I mean, he's a young fighter, he's a pretty athletic fighter, he can punch, and he's starting to put things together against a lower tier of competition that I'm not particularly sure Jackery isn't in right now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, a, this is a good fight to make. Like, I don't think it's... Um, I'm not a fan of Jackery moving back down to middleweight, I guess, just for, like, his health and the fact that he's not going to do anything at either weight class anyway. Like, if I were Jackery, I would just be sitting up at light heavyweight eating the Paul Craig's. But... 
you know, it's, it's a fight to make if you're going to move back. It, it's not nonsense. I always think when a fighter moves up in weight late in their career, it's a sort of warning sign that they're starting to get a little bit desperate. Yeah, I mean, in general, for fighters moving around in weight, like, I remember thinking when Michael Johnson went down to featherweight, like, this could go well, but it probably won't because he's old. And then he moved back up to lightweight, and it turned out the featherweight, either the featherweights didn't ruin him or he was ruined in the first place. So, so yeah, I mean, I don't think moving, like, in general, weight class instability is, an, is a thing where they know they're not going to really do much at either weight, and they just, you know... Making a run is out of the question, so they can just get their money. We seem to be writing off Jokovic a little bit on this um, little segment here, so we need to focus on the positives. And even if the guy is 40 years old, he's still got a lot of talent. He is still arguably one of the best jiu-jitsu guys in the sport right now. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's always been annoying about Jokovic is that he's always been a very good top player. But if you look at the guys who have had to fought, fight him off from top, it's been, in the last, like, what, six or seven years, it's been, like, Tim Bosch and Kelvin Castellum. Uh He's a very, very, very bad wrestler in the open. Like, he has no shot whatsoever. And he's a strong wrestler against the cage, but also he's been stalled out there more than, uh, you know, other elite jiu-jitsu guys have when they need it on the ground. So he doesn't, like, he never developed a system like Damian Maya, for instance, where Damian Maya could take the bad positions he was in from his weird shot and turn it into something better from, like, that deep half sequence. That's not something that Jack Ray ever developed. He, he really needed to, like, strong his opponents to the ground. And I think with the lack of shot that he's had throughout his career, it's getting harder and harder for him to do that. Yeah, I mean, the other route that Jack Ray has is that if Holland does something, like, a flying omoplata or something, and just ends up on the ground with Jack Ray, which is the only place I really trust Jack Ray to be competent anymore. Um, that's a route for Jack Ray. Like, Jack Ray has a lot of roots here that I think are very doable, even with the fight that he fought against Jan Blachowicz, because I don't think Holland is, like, quite as diligent as Jan Blachowicz in, like, stopping takedowns and being in the clinch. But I kind of also feel like I should default to youth again, because Jack Ray, is, he doesn't seem quite as far gone as JDS, in my opinion, because he started from a better place. But he's still also pretty old, and I don't trust his cardio. Uh, I don't trust him on the feet against someone who can, you know, kind of strand him at range and punch him very hard. So, yeah, I'm not really sure which way I'm leaning here. I think I'll lean Jackery just because Holland can't stop himself from doing stupid things. Uh, yeah, that's the way. I have too many questions on Holland's ground game. And I think you mentioned before, yeah, he's... Um... His takedown defense isn't great. We've seen him get submitted by Brendan Allen before. And I think if Jokovic gets him down, I don't think that Holland is going to be able to defend it. So I'm going to say Jokovic, whether he gets it by uh, submission or not, I'm not entirely sure. I just I don't think that Holland has that sort of one-shot power to knock Jokovic out. So I'm going to say Jokovic and I'm going to say, I'm going to say late submission, third round. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think the thing about guys like Jack Array, and I've used this in picking fights like RDA and Aldo too, is that they're going to look worse every time they come out. It's not something where you can look at their last fight and be like, they're going to fight this fight again. That's just not how it works. So I think there's a good chance Jack Array comes out, gets Holland down, and it turns out his Jiu Jitsu is not very good either. Or like he gasses out doing things on the ground that he never would have uh, done before. But, you know, there's just. There are too many questions on Kevin Holland's decision-making, I think, to really pick him confidently here. Even I think that evens out the youth thing. It's just he's not going to fight the fight that uh, emphasizes his youth reliably. I think if he does, he knocks Jack Ray out. 
But if he doesn't, it could be ugly for him. And it would be a real shame to end that sort of momentum that Kevin Holland's built over the years. Four wins in a row since May. So uh, we're going to be interested to see that one. I still have a sneaking feeling that fight's not going to take place. I'm just a little concerned about Holland getting COVID. And I just worry that he's maybe still going to have the symptoms. I think if one fight's going to fall off the card, it's going to be that one. I mean, you have to be skeptical about every fight at this yes. point. And on that cheery note, we'll be moving on to the lightweight division. We've got two unranked fighters and two... This is a really intriguing one. This is one that split a lot of the hardcore fans in terms of which way this one's going to go. It's one of the most underrated fighters in the UFC right now, Hinato Moyakano. And he's taking on one of the big flavour of the month, one of the big stars of Fight Island. And that's Rafael Fiziev, who's arguably the third most famous Kyrgyzstani fighter in the promotion right now after the Shevchenko sisters. Three fights so far with the company, he's 2-1 in those so far, but it's our last fight against Mark DeCasey that really got people talking. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really, really excited. This is probably the best pure fight that I expect to happen uh, on this card. Uh, both guys are really good kickers at range. I think Fizzy's probably the more powerful kicker, but uh, Moicano is, he's one of the smartest kickers I've seen in MMA, like ever. I think there are a lot of guys in MMA who, you know, if you look at, if you ask people what a good kicker is, it tends to be guys like Barboza. But I think if you look at it in terms of um, how they set their kicks up, how they can build off their kicks, and the contingency plan they have within their kicking game, I think Moicano is the best of the best. And a lot of that was shown in both the Stevens fight and the Cater fight, where you can see him, you know, counter kicking to take away the jab, uh, kicking and stepping in to create exchanges. Uh, at like a positional advantage where you can knock him out of stance and either circle away as he's out of stance or step in with a punch, which he did to Stevens once and it was gorgeous. Um, angling off his kicks to get guys following and kicking them while they're following. There are a lot of cool things that um, Moicano does that make him more of a Muay Thai fighter than the guys who are considered Muay Thai fighters. Uh, beyond that, I think Moicano is, uh, we've seen his jab before. It's pretty good. He's, uh, it's not as powerful as Cub Swanson made it look, but he can build off that. He can outfight pretty reliably. Um, and he has cardio for about two and a half rounds in terms of, you know, normal. Um, if it isn't the Ortega fight where he's getting his body slaughtered, um, Moicano is a pretty reliable guy in terms of building off his offense and um, being there for the entire three rounds. Something against Cater where if he's in a dominant fight, he can be there for the whole time. So I don't think the cardio liability is as great as people thought it was after Ortega. So what we're looking at with Fiziev, on the other hand, is a really powerful kicker. He's a power kicker who throws combinations on the inside. He's very good at those. He hits the body regularly. And I think the worry that I had with Fiziev is that it's kind of the opposite of Moicano. It's that he was completely dominating uh, Martikizi, and he let him back into the fight at the end because he was – I think he was pretty tired, but he wasn't really like – he wasn't really limiting his changes. He kept like welcoming them like he was winning them as reliable as he was when he wasn't tired which is a weird thing for a prospect. Like, I'm really excited about Fiziev. Uh, he, he's defensively actually pretty crafty uh, beyond that matrix lean thing. Uh, he was slipping punches in combination against Akizi. But I also think that Moicano can um, can draw some of those responses and start kicking Fiziev. Takizi uh, got some kicks off on Fiziev uh, reasonably reliably. And I kind of think Moicano's just better down the stretch at figuring out how to uh, take over a fight because I think if Fiziev is winning at the beginning, Moicano might not be durable enough to take that punishment. But if he is, I think Fiziev is going to start letting Moicano figure things back out. Where I don't really know if the reverse is true. Like if Moicano starts figuring Fiziev out, um, 
kicking with him at range and, you know, maybe avoiding the kicks that Fiziev is throwing, which is a tough ask. But I think if Moicano starts winning the fight, he's more guaranteed to keep winning the fight than Fiziev is. So I think that's going to make me lean Moicano. But there are some questions. You touched on a good point there, which is something I, I've written up in my notes about Moicano. His adaptability is fantastic. I think that the way that he's able to change, he's able to read his opponents, see where the strengths are, and then target those areas which are going to cause their opponents' problems. And I think the Calvin Cater fight was a great example of that. He realized, hey, if this guy has a fantastic job, if I start kicking him, and he hammered that leg throughout that fight, and Cater just had no response to it. I find it really fascinating as well, just sort of like the, the attitude towards Moicano. Because here we have a guy who, he made the featherweight top five, his only losses were Brian Ortega, which was like a last-minute Hail Mary sub from Brian, Jose Aldo, and the Korean Zombie. No shame in losing to those three, yet he moves up to lightweight, there's no fanfare whatsoever, gets like a sub-minute submission on the Sao Paulo card, which had like zero fans in it. It's just, I think we've got this fantastic fighter here, and nobody ever talks about him. Well, I mean, I think Moicano was, he was considered like, a, he was like a minus 400 or something against Cub Swanson and loved every bit of it. I judge a fighter for losing to Korean Zombie a bit if they were meant to be elite because I've never bought Korean Zombie as much as other people have. But also, I don't think that win was particularly indicative of how that matchup goes most of the time because, you know, it was like a knockout in about 30 seconds, all things considered. So I think Moicano pretty much uh, destroys Korean Zombie most of the time. And that fight was like a one out of ten he doesn't because, uh, you know, Korean zombies not look good against the kind of moving around, jabbing, kicking in there with any kind of consistency. He's not a good pressure fighter, and I think uh, Moicano would have gotten a lot of his stuff off for free. But I think Fiziev is probably a more dangerous fight in totality because Fiziev can actually kick with him at range. He's a harder kicker. He's a decent pressure fighter uh, against the outfighting uh, skill of Moicano. It's, it's a risky fight for Moicano in terms of taking a prospect like this. Like, I think Moicano, if you put him against someone like Ally Quinta or um, Dan Hooker, even, I think Moicano would be in a little bit of a better place because Fiziev is, I mean, I think Fiziev would probably beat those two as well. But that's the thing. Fiziev doesn't have the name value, and that's not the kind of fight that I think a guy like Moicano should be taking, which says some good things about him in terms of, you know, taking whoever they give him, which is a bad idea when the UFC probably cuts him off one loss. But, um, yeah, I mean, Moicano's pretty cool. I think he could be – I'm not sure he can be a contender because his defense in the pocket isn't very good past that jab. So someone like Dustin Poirier would be pretty bad. Uh, you know, guys like Conor McGregor, Justin Gaethje, they'd be pretty bad for him. And Moicano is the best athlete. He's not super durable. His cardio is good when he's in control, but when he's not, he's it's not great in a hard fight. He's not much of a puncher. There are a lot of things that you can point to with Moicano that leads to some skepticism, I think. And some of those are amplified moving up a weight where there are bigger hitters. But I think he's a smart enough fighter where you can rely on him to give interesting showings uh, if they last long enough. It wouldn't surprise me if Moicano tries turning this into a ground fight. Because Fazeev being the Muay Thai specialist, I have question marks over how good his ground game is going to be. His takedown defense has held up so far, but... If he does get taken down, is he just going to be a fish out of water? So it wouldn't surprise me if we see that from Moicano. Yeah, I mean, Moicano can hit reactive doubles. He's got a decent body lock. So there are, there are some uh, spots here for Moicano to take it to the ground. I think 
Fazeev looks like the better athlete. He looks way stronger, in my opinion. But um, So that could cause some trouble. But I also think that at range, there's a lot of risk for uh, Moicano in moments where there might not be once he starts building off his offense. So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm probably going to take Moicano, but I think I'll flip-flop on this one. It's a really, really exciting fight. I love it. Because I think both guys, as I mentioned before, with the guys I think they'd beat, I think both are potential top tens. Well, both are definite top tens. Both are potential top fives, I think. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of this. This is a it's a high level fight without the stakes that it deserves. Because the winner is probably just going to go on to fight like Kevin Lee or something, and they deserve better. I heard somebody uh, compare Fazeev uh, fierce, fiercely. Said he looked like a skinny Roy Nelson. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult. No, I'm with you. I'm going to go for Moicano on this one. Um, I'm going to say. Mike, I don't think Moicano has that sort of. I don't see him finishing for Steve, but I see a sort of like 30 27. I just think he's he's just going to be too intelligent, too wily, and he's going to neutralize a lot of Fazeev's strengths. Yeah, I think I think it's very likely that Fazeev puts up a very good first round. And I think it's, I mean, as I said, I think it's likely Fazeev even wins the fight. But I think if Moicano wins, the first round is going to be pretty rough. Because as we saw in the, um, in the Mark fight, I think Fazeev hit them with like a clear 10-8 in that round. Uh, the kicking is going to be pretty rough because at kicking range, Fazeev is the more powerful kicker. He's a very quick kicker. Uh, and both guys aren't the best defensively against kicks as they are offensively. So it's going to be uh, pretty rough. But I, I do trust Moicano to eventually start taking weapons away and uh, probably build on his offense better than Fazeev uh, does. Right, so co-main event time. Now, normally, we usually just focus on the title fights when it comes to these uh, preview shows, these sort of individual previews. But for me, this co-main event has enough intrigue about it. We'll probably do our own video about this. We're going back into the lightweight division, and Tony Ferguson back in action for the first time since that loss to Justin Gagey, and he's taking on a very dangerous opponent in Charles Oliveira. Bookmakers for this one, they have it very much in favour of Tony Ferguson right now. Just checking the odds here. At the moment, you can get Tony Ferguson at minus 160, Charles Oliveira plus 130. The big story about this one, as, as good as Charles Oliveira is, the big story going into this fight, is Tony Ferguson still the same fighter after the Justin Gagey match? Uh, I mean, I think that's kind of a trick question because I picked Gagey confidently over Ferguson because I thought Ferguson was declining since about 2017. Like, um, the Pettis fight and the Cerrone fight were not good looks for Tony, in my opinion. There were dominant performances, but I think the trouble that he had was the kind that he shouldn't have had against opponents who are just so easy for the archetype that Tony represents. Right? Like, Tony, Tony Ferguson's game is just, he's a relentless pressure fighter. He starts slow, but he eventually turns into, like, a, a whirlwind of, like, elbows and jabs and front kicks. He's very good at uh, attacking his opponent's body with that front kick. He draws reactions out with his jab and uh, tires them out very quick. So with that kind of pressure, I don't think you should have had trouble with someone like Anthony Pettis or Donald Cerrone at all. But you had a pretty ugly first round against Donald Cerrone. You had the knockdown against Anthony Pettis, which kind of convinced me that Tony isn't really able to win easy fights as easily as he should, which raises the question, how does he win a fight against someone who's very hard for him, like Justin Gaethje? And the answer is that he doesn't. So I think Tony Ferguson put up a courageous showing against Justin Gaethje, but I also think there's a lot of questions going into that fight about his physical integrity and a lot of questions going out of that fight about his physical integrity. I think he's declining technically as well. 
which makes this an interesting fight because as in doubt as Tony Ferguson's constitution is, after all of that, Charles Oliveira is a fighter whose constitution has been in doubt for pretty much his entire career. He's had a history of, you know, gassing out and throwing fights away. He's been sub uh, he's been submitted by like random guillotines when he's supposed to be the submission guy because his a grappling game is just too all offense. But he's starting to put things together and it's pretty interesting. Um, I feel like I'm going to take Oliveira here by the end of this, and a lot of that is just because of Tony Ferguson's style not adapting well to decline, in my opinion. Like a lot of like if you look at the way Tony Ferguson fights, it's something that uh, my friend Haxerize puts. Uh, quite elegantly, is that he fights, he wouldn't be ruined by a coach who shows him the right way to do things, but he would be ruined by a coach who gives him the wrong philosophy to fighting that isn't his. That said, that kind of aggressive pressure, he doesn't do it in a technically sound way. His stance is pretty tenuous on the inside. That's a lot of how Justin Gaethje fought him, is if he could just see him stepping forward, and if he steps forward, he's squaring his stance which leaves him unable to really do anything defensively, which leaves him so open on the counter pretty much all the time. Um, I think Charles Oliveira is the kind to punish that. At this point in his career, Oliveira's turned into a pretty mean counterpuncher. He's uh, pretty potent in terms of pocket exchanges, and I think Tony Ferguson generally doesn't want to be in that range. Tony Ferguson's best showing, in my opinion, was against Rafael Dos Anjos, where he didn't avoid pocket exchanges per se, but he uh, played the jab off the front kick and kept just a slightly longer range. Right, So I think Tony Ferguson's tendency to be upright and throwing straight and with his stance squared is something that he's not going to get away with the older he gets against the danger man like Charles Oliveira. And Charles Oliveira has made significant strides in his stand-up as well. He's a lot more composed than he used to be. He used to have a tendency of just diving in into these reckless, brawling situations to try and get the takedowns. That seems to have eased away now. I think Kevin Lee... Uh, was probably one of his best striking performances and you have questions over how good Kevin Lee actually is but I think it doesn't take anything away from Charles's performance in the striking side of things. His bread and butter still remains his grappling. He is very creative on the ground. In a lot of ways we've got two very similar type of fighters. Sort of sloppy but effective brawlers in the stand-up but very creative once it hits Matt. Uh, yeah, I mean I think Oliveira's stand-up has turned... Oliveira's become a very good striker now, and I think a lot of it's just be... Uh, a lot of it against Lee is Lee just being very, 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 very uncomfortable in pocket exchanges. Um, he could just pretty much ignore anything to Lee through, which helps him, but also Oliveira's become pretty good. He ducked Lee into an uppercut several times. He's pretty good at countering guys who, like, Jared Gordon try to push him back. Uh... He's, he likes the front kick. He doesn't really use it particularly. Um, he doesn't like build off it, but he likes it a lot. Uh, he's a good pressure fighter. He has decent footwork on the front foot. I think the David Tamer fight is honestly probably his most impressive showing since his resurgence because as good as Kevin Lee is, he's like uniquely un, uh, he's uniquely outwillable in a way that other fighters tend not to be. But Tamer like poked him in the eye super early and Oliver was able to push through, which kind of uh, defied the mental fragility thing that you could say about Oliveira for pretty much his entire career. I'm not sure. So I'll put it this way. I think 2016 Ferguson pretty comfortably beats Charles Oliveira. He gets through the initial uh, issues and gasses him out. But at this point, I don't really think Tony Ferguson's that guy. And I think it's a real shame that, I hate to say it, I, I, I agree with you. I think Tony Ferguson, as much as I love him, as much as I loved his winning streak, as much as 
I would have loved to have seen him versus Khabib at some point. We're not seeing the same Tony Ferguson. Um, and I just have this real concern that the guy that's going to be stepping into the octagon, and I hope I'm wrong, as a Tony Ferguson fan, I hope I'm wrong about this. It reminds me a lot of Hen and Burrell when he had those fights after the TJ Dillashaw loss. He just wasn't the same fighter anymore, and I just got this fear that Tony Ferguson's going to be... I, I don't see Charles Oliveira finishing him, but I just don't think Tony Ferguson's the same man that he was back in 20. 2015-2016. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a corollary of how I thought Tony Ferguson was uh, on the decline a couple years ago, that I wasn't as excited for the Khabib fight as a lot of people. Um, I think Khabib probably would have just uh, destroyed him. But, I mean, given the lead fight for one and even Khabib's increased comfort on the feet, I think Ferguson would have had a lot of trouble there uh, and, you know, would have just gotten pinned up against the fence. But, yeah, I mean, it's a shame for, from, like, an institutional perspective that Tony Ferguson went on this long win streak and his reward was getting uh, completely pulverized by Justin Gaethje. So that, that was a shame. I think Oliveira finishes him early. If he finishes, if he wins, I think Oliveira finishes him early. Um, just comes in, goes... Because another thing we haven't mentioned about Tony is that he's historically a very, very slow, slow starter, starter. And that's not going to get better. That's not going to get better <laughs> the older he gets, in my opinion. Uh, and Oliveira, he starts quick. He's um, he's had a number of first-round finishes. He found the counter on Jerry Gordon pretty early. He's abused Nick Lentz so much that I I would assume he has Nick Lentz's timing down like before the fight, considering how much he's fought him. But he still beat Nick Lentz's ass in that first round of their uh, third fight. So um, yeah, I think it's going to be rough. I think Oliveira comes out, forces the issue, forces early pocket exchanges, and we find that Tony isn't the guy he used to be. Watch him dominate him. <laughs> Okay, so that's pretty dark note. It's been a very depressing show. I'm going to blame the weather for this. It's been very depressing so far in terms of the, the sort of tone of this show. Main event time. So we're going back to the USC flyweight division. It is a bit of a historic situation because USC flyweight's never been the most beloved division in the UFC. Dana White's uh, spoken about trying to cut the division for many, many years. The fans haven't really been all that interested for a uh, a long time now and yet here we are two title fights in two months the flyweights have basically saved the UFC's winter because Davison Figueiredo is back in action once again he got that minute submission up against Alex Perez and he's going up against Brandon Moreno who's also got a quick turnaround now this is 21 days between Figueiredo's two title fights if he was to pull this off he would break Ronda Rousey's record for the shortest time between two title defences for me, though, this is a really intriguing fight, arguably a bit more intriguing than the one that we had against Alex Perez. There was a lot of people who sort of came into that fight thinking, well, Alex Perez is very underrated, and I was one of those people. I tried to sell the idea of Alex Perez being a legitimate threat in that fight, and yet for Figueredo to just submit him straight away, I think a lot of people at that point sat up and said, hey, Figueredo is the real deal, and he could very well dominate this division for a long time. Yeah, I'm a huge Figueredo fan. Like, among the uh, the hipsters at the fight site, I'm probably the biggest of them. Uh, because, you know, he's not the kind of fighter I tend to like, really. He's uh, he's very athletically dependent, which is something that tends to be a red flag. But he's also very good at using it. Uh, to compare it to the recently cut Yo Romero, I think, is a decent comparison. But 
I don't really take the same lessons from the Perez fight. I think Perez is a I think Perez is a tougher opponent for uh, Figueroa than Moreno is, uh, but only if the fight gets to the point where Perez can do things. And I think a fight that short doesn't really say a ton. Um, but yeah, I mean, for as long as that fight went, Figueroa looked very good. He was attacking the body very early. Uh, Perez also looked good. I like the takedown entry he hit underneath Figueroa's right hand. He was kicking actively, and he realized that he didn't want to really be in the pocket with Figueroa, which is why he was able to connect uh, Figueroa's pocket entry to the to the takedown. Figure cheeky fence grabs, which is always cool, because, you know, fence grabs are the kind of cheating that I can get behind. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there's a line there, right? You, you have sneaky headbutts, which is fine, fence grabs, which is fine, versus eye pokes and nut shots, which are not fine. But, yeah, Figueroa did one of the acceptable Yo Romero, oh, you're such a lovable rogue type cheating, and uh, he got the win. He did that weird, uh, he did that, uh, what was it, like Connie Basami, I think, the leg lock entry. And then uh, guillotined him as Perez tried to pass with the body lock, which was pretty cool. So I don't think that fight goes like that reliably, but I do think Figueroa wins that fight pretty reliably. Uh, that fight didn't change my mind on it, but I think that's a winnable fight for Figueroa. Moreno, I, I honestly think is easier. And I think that's a controversial opinion. I, I like Brandon Moreno. Um, I think he's one of those sort of all-action fighters. The flyweight division has a lot of those, of those sort of fast scrambling types. And I can see possibly Moreno maybe trying to scramble and get himself into sort of like a, a rear naked choke sort of position. But to do that, he's got to try and take Figueiredo down. And that's where I think he's going to have some issues. Because if you look at a lot of Moreno's takedowns, he relies on sort of like that sort of shooting in for the double leg when someone's up against the fence. I think... The way to beat Figueredo is very much in the same way that Formiga did. You've got to trouble him with a couple of leg kicks and then shoot in when you're in the middle of the octagon. And once he gets down there, Figueredo, he does have good core strength. He is able to scramble, but Formiga did very well just holding him down and grinding out that decision. I don't think Moreno's that type of grappler. He's got great jiu-jitsu. His takedowns can be effective in the right circumstances. I just don't see him being able to do that. Yeah, so the thing about the matchup, I think, is that the spots of vulnerability we've seen from Figueredo are mostly in the Formiga fight, and it hasn't exactly just been wrestling, in my opinion. I think it's been Formiga drew him forward, and Formiga was able to play a very sound, very conservative outfighting game, uh, very good lateral movement, very stingy about the reads that he gave Figueredo. Uh, which is important because if you give Figueroa a lot of inputs, he's very quick at making reads. He's very, very quick. And I think that's something that if you're going to gas Figueroa out, the path to doing that is the fight like a Pantoja fight, where Pantoja pretty much got knocked out 17 times and was just somehow still there to see uh, Figueroa gas out. And I don't think that's a replicable route for anybody. So I think a f is there a fighter like Formiga? I don't really think so. I think Sergio Pettis would have been interesting. Sergio Pettis would have drawn Figueredo out, tried to extend the range and go on the back foot, jab to draw counters. But I also think that the dynamism difference there is going to eventually show up because Figueredo is going to do something crazy and uh, end up on the inside and nuke him or wrestle him or something like that. In terms of the wrestling, I think uh, Moreno preferring the body lock as a takedown is going to keep him away from the guillotine. But I also don't really know if Moreno is the lockdown threat that Alex Perez was. Alex Perez is a really good riding game. He's brilliant from front headlock. Um, I think Moreno is more of like a scrambly type, and I don't think 
that someone who's able to athlete themselves out from underneath a genuine control artist like Juicy Formiga is going to have trouble scrambling out of a guy who's decidedly less focused on control and more on, uh, you know, guillotines and rear naked chokes that are like quick. They're very quick. He's not uh, uh, the kind to hold someone down and work from there the way Formiga does. So in terms of how the matchup works, I think if Moreno comes out trying to pressure and push her pace the way uh, Pantosha did and the way he did against uh, Kai Kara France, he's probably just going to get killed. Uh, Moreno's not great. He's aggressive in exchanges, but I don't think he's great. He doesn't have great punching form. He's not very good defensively whatsoever. He got counterpunched to death by um, Alexander Pantoja, which is not great. Pantoja's a good counterpuncher, in my opinion, but Figueredo's probably the best in the division right now. Uh, he counterpunched uh, Joe Benavidez with relative, um, I wouldn't say ease, but very reliably over the three rounds that that fight happened. So I think if Moreno tries to give Figueredo too much, he's going to get killed. And if he doesn't give Figueredo enough, Figueredo's probably just going to back him up and uh, hit his body a lot. I think this is kind of an easy matchup for Figueredo, but that could age badly because uh, Figueredo is Figueredo's a weird fighter. Like I, I feel like he's more reliable than people give him credit for, but there's always the risk that a guy like him who's so reliant on power punching just kind of uh, concedes a decision at some point. But I think Figueredo beats him off. And I think the other concern that I have with Figueredo is Figueredo cuts a lot of weight to get down to 125. We know that Brandon Moreno can do 25 minutes. I think he had that fight, I think it was against Sergio Perez, which went the distance. Uh, so we know he can do it. But Figueredo cutting so much weight, if Moreno can get this into the championship rounds, like rounds four, rounds five, what kind of Figueredo are we going to see there? Well, I think if Figueredo's dictating the exchanges the way I expect him to, I think we see Figueredo look perfectly fine. Uh, because, I mean, I think Figueredo is the kind to slow down in a fight where he's doing a lot, but I also don't think a lot of fighters can get through a phase where Figueredo's doing a lot, and Moreno's among them. Moreno's super durable, that's something we hadn't mentioned, but I also think that Figueredo's like a, a pound-for-pound tier puncher, and if you just keep walking into those without the defense that Moreno doesn't have, um, it's not going to go well. So I think Figueredo's going to be able to limit exchanges here, and if he does, then Moreno's going to have trouble enforcing the pace and getting Figueredo to gas out four and five uh, enough to pick up a win. Now, if Moreno just walks into him, eats a ton of damage for two rounds, is still there after round two, Figueroa is just completely knackered, then there's a route. But that seems like something that's pretty low percentage. It's not it's not as much a real path to winning as it is like, uh, I wouldn't say luck, but something that's, it will, it will be something you'd see Daniel Cormier doing. And that's not a compliment. So... I don't think Moreno has a reliable path to winning here with the cardio. It's just that he might win with it if he's able to just tank everything Figueredo throws. So a lot of the people on the opinion poll that we post on the community page, they're not giving Brandon Moreno a chance here. Uh, only 8% of people think that Brandon Moreno is going to win this one. Figueredo at 92%. So the punters, those sort of everyday fans who follow the INC, they're very much backing Figueredo. And the question is, if Figueredo does get this done, what next? Do we get that Cody Garbrandt fight that was uh, hinted at uh, back around sort of August, September time? Uh, do we see Askar Askarov? Is there a new challenger which emerges? Does Brandon Royval possibly get a bounce back win and they push him into there? What about Manel Cape? A lot of people saying that he's a potential flyweight title challenger. 
Yeah, I don't really care about Cody Garbrandt that much in general. I think it's a dangerous fight for Fig, but also, you know, since he's coming off, like, kidney issues and COVID-19, mm-hmm. the cut is honestly more of a concern for me for him than it is for Figueredo just being big and making the cut several times. Um, but, I mean, that's an interesting fight, I guess. I just don't really want to see Cody Garbrandt getting a third title shot that he doesn't deserve. So that's something. Uh, Askar Askarov is booked against Joe Benavidez, I believe, which is a tough, tough, tough fight for Askar Askarov. Um, if he gets through that, he deserves the title shot 100%. But I kind of think Figueredo, if he beats um, if he beats Moreno here, he hasn't cleaned out the division per se, but there's no one clear contender. And guys like Holly and Paiva are probably going to take a bit to get up to the, um, to the contender tier. So I wouldn't be surprised if he moved up to Bantamweight, faced someone like Sanhagen or Jan, uh, after, you know, Jan Sterling, hopefully. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are a ton of interesting options for Figueredo. It's just that the UFC has gutted flyweights so thoroughly that a lot of them are not at 125. So, money where your mouth is. Who wins this and how does it happen? And what round? Uh, Figueredo knockout round two, I think. Um, Moreno looks pretty durable for the first round. Eats a lot of punishment. It looks like he's going to pull through. And then Figueredo just keeps it going. I think you just read me mind. I was going to say the exact same thing, you know. I'm going to say Figueredo's second round knockout as well. Um, I think that Figueredo, he wins the first round. He uses that to sort of like just feel out Moreno, see where his strengths and his weaknesses are, and then he goes in for the kill in the second. So on that um, fantastic... So on that cheery note there, I'm really having an absolute stinker today. I'm just completely messing up my words here. Uh, on that cheery <laughs> note, I do want to say a big thank you to Saram for joining me today. Uh, Saram, if there's anybody who enjoys your input, wants to uh, follow you on social media, do you have a YouTube page, Facebook, Twitter? Um, this is your chance to sell yourself. Uh, yeah, I mean, go to the fight site. That's pretty much the biggest selling thing that I could do because... Uh... That's where most of my work is, and that's how I make the money. Sign up to the Patreon, please. Uh, and on Twitter, I'm Shuram M. Says, S-R-I-R-A-M-M-S-A-Y-S. So um, check that out if you want bad tweets. Uh, nothing else. And on the whole, your assessment of UFC 256, is this a fitting end to one of the most bizarre years of all time? I mean, there's still the 19th card. But I'm, I'm looking, looking forward, forward to that to one. More. Wonderboy versus Neil. That should have been a five-rounder anyway. I'm mostly here for Marais versus Font, Rob Font gang, Go Font. But, yeah, I mean, I think 250, it's a perfectly fine pay-per-view, I think. There's a couple of interesting fights. There are even more interesting fighters on it. Um, Figueredo is, <laughs> Figueredo is a joy to watch. I love watching him. And um, Ferguson Oliveira is cool. Moicano Fazeev is like a genuinely great fight that I think deserves to be in the spot where it is. It's just I don't expect much from UFC pay-per-views anymore, and I think with the direction that the promotion's going, we should all get used to pay-per-views like UFC 234. Don't say that. That's one of the worst pay-per-views of all time. I'm just... I'm, well, I mean, if you're not excited for Contender Series, people, what can I do for I'm you? I'm just worried that COVID's going to eradicate this card, and we're going to end up with Tisha Torres and Angela Hill headlining. <laughs> And no offense to the girls, they're actually very enjoyable people. I've spoken to them uh, a couple of times on social media. Very nice people, but um, we hope, for our own sake, that uh, Figueredo and Moreno is able to help together. And the same with Ferguson and Oliveira. Two fantastic fights. That's going to be our main and core main for 256. We hope you enjoy the show, and we hope that you also enjoy a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. So that's been Saran. Thank you very much for joining us. 
My name's been Carl Bainbridge. This is the INC. Thank you for watching and a very Merry Christmas.